you like to say, Tommy? One, two, three. Go, Tommy! Grief can't be all negative and sad. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of the Good Days, Bad Days podcast. I am Rachel Vani, and this is part two of Brittany's story. In this episode, we talk about a little bit more about the diagnosis of her daughter Sawyer having a fatty oxidation disorder known as VLCAD. We also talk about her subsequent pregnancies, uh, the birth of her third daughter, and also being diagnosed with lupus. We go into a lot of detail about the emotional side of things and how going through tough times can really test your faith. We talk a little bit about that. So it's a very good and very emotional episode. I hope you enjoy it and I hope you get something out of it. It was very moving for me. So enjoy. So Sawyer so had a port put in. Yep. And so, and then it felt like probably amazing to get more than two hours of sleep at a time. I remember when we switched over <laughs> from the NG to the G tube, it's like, 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 why did I... Why did I, Why did I put this system? off? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it did. I mean, I was still obviously struggling with, you know, like the post-traumatic stress of everything. And so, I mean, I technically was allowed to get longer than that, but, but you know, you're still going in and checking and making sure that they're breathing. And I mean, when it, with a kid like, you know, our daughters were, if, if a tube comes unhooked in the middle of the night, for some families, that's just a mess. For us, it's life or death, you know? And I mean, there, so it was definitely a saving grace. And it was, I even will say to this day, it was the best thing we ever did for her. But I mean, there is a whole other set of issues that comes with that too. And so it was great, but you know, it was also a big adjustment. I mean, in the six months time, I went from, well, I mean, in a, a year from that time, I had found out I was pregnant, I had a miscarriage, got pregnant, had a horrible pregnancy, had a baby, had a baby with issues, you know, and you envision bringing home this beautiful, perfect baby. And now you're bringing home this beautiful, perfect baby who's got scars and, you know, and accessories as we call them that, that they weren't born with. And it's, it is, it's, I mean, I remember when Sawyer came back from surgery, like just looking at her body with these new scars and, you know, her new goodies and accessories it's, it was it was just kind of like a really surreal moment like it was almost kind of easy to pretend like this wasn't forever or that this wasn't gonna like change everything before because you couldn't see it like you couldn't lay eyes on it and be like that's wrong like that's not right you know there's something different this kind of like made it really real for me like this is this she's different like things are different it's not going to be what you envisioned and I think like that moment I mean is when I really started to almost have another lapse of grief, you know, and, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't talk about in grief when there's not death, like loss when the person's not dead and how weird that is to experience because you're still looking at the person, you're still living for that person, you're still doing every single thing, single thing that you would for that person, but you kind of I mean, you do, you go through the same stages of grief that you go to when that person dies forever in a different way, you know? And it's like a loss of expe expectations that you had 
for her and also grieving the fact that her life is going to be more difficult than it would have otherwise been. On that note, like what are some things that went through your mind when you were getting this diagnosis? What are some things that you were like grieving through in your head? My biggest thing was I honestly started to grieve her because in so many ways, and when you look up this disorder and you come in contact with families, preterm death is a thing. It's a very common thing. And especially with some of the more severe side disorders, you know, GA2, VLCAD, LCHAD, those, those disorders do bring an increased risk of premature death and sudden death. And that I think when and they're telling you all these things like, oh, you know, it's manageable with diet and oh, like we're, we'll be able to do that. New treatments are coming out. There's all these like good things, but you know, as a mom, that's what you're thinking about. Like, okay, yeah, we're going to do that. But like, she could still die. We're going to do all this and it could be in vain. And she's, she could still die. Like I could do everything right. And she could still die. I mean, it's just, you start to grieve and and it really clouded in that moment for me that I, I was grieving her life as a whole. And in that moment, I didn't know what that looked like. I I didn't know if she'd be ever able to go to school, if she'd be able to run and play with friends normally, if she would be even neurologically normal. This disorder doesn't affect the brain, but if they have a metabolic crisis that's severe enough, it can cause permanent brain damage. And so with her being as unstable as she was, she started having some heart problems. You know, there was all these things and we just didn't, you just don't know. And so in that moment, I just started to grieve her. And you realize, I feel like when you have a child that's in that position where you're kind of on edge all the time, Mm -hmm. it's exhausting because you're constantly trying to live in the present and really deeply appreciate every single moment, which sounds ideal, right? Like, oh, I'm in all these things. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. You're constantly thinking of your child in the fact I should remember this because they might die. And it's, right. it's a very- Right, like I'm, I'm going to want to remember this moment after she's dead. How screwed up is that to live life like that, you know? And, and like you said, like pe- people would be like, oh, it really gives you a new appreciation for life. And I said, actually, it gives me an appreciation for death because, you know, I, I now understand what that loss looks like. Like I'm looking at it dead in the face every day. Yes, in a way it it did. It gave me an appreciation for life. And I was, I was so thankful that she was there, you know, like we talked about right after she was born, I was just thankful to have her there. And, and when, when I processed the loss of unity and what we went through, I will often say that, that her loss prepared me for grief later on, but it also in a way prepared me to look at death, that like death was an option and death could happen, and that it will happen at some point, and that I was completely out of, I had no control of the situation, and that it wasn't up to me, and that whatever I did, and however I reacted, or however I took care of her, or, you know, it it didn't matter. At the end, it was going to happen. I was going to happen, and that, in its own way, was absolutely horrifying, and so, yeah, I mean, it did, it brought, it brought an appreciation for life. And I was thankful to even that she was, at least she's here, at least she's here. But then at the same time, like, but there's also a reality that she might not be for long. It was horrifying. It's one of those things where you realize how fragile everything is in your life. 
And it's almost a, a weird, it's a weird feeling because, well, you see other people who think in their minds that they have control and you want, and, and it's almost like, I mean, not to get political here, um, with, with COVID, I see people with this feeling of that won't happen to me. I can, I have full control. I would be over, fine. I would be fine. And if I did get sick, I just go to the hospital and they fix me. But once you've been through, especially when when you have someone that has such a rare disorder, which almost COVID is kind of on the same page because they don't know anything about it. You're like, um, yeah, the doctors, I mean, they try their best and they take the information that they know. But if you're in a bad space, they just pretty much, they go, well, we'll just support you the best you can, but you're on your own kind of Right. Thing. Yeah. We, yeah. We'll try, but we don't know if it's going to actually help. Right. I mean, really the only things that doctors can do is they can use treatments they hope is helping, but a lot of it is supportive care and just waiting for your body to heal itself. And a lot of people don't know that. And so when you've been in these situations where you're in the hospital and you're just waiting waiting for your kid to get better and you don't know if they're going to get better. Me and you know that feeling and you're just sitting there waiting um, for their body to adjust or do whatever it needs to do. Um, It's a different way of looking at life for sure. Right. There's not like just a cure-all where you can be like, oh, we're going to give you this and you're going to be totally fine. It's not, it's not, that's not how it works. And, and like you said, like when you're in that hospital room, day after day after day and the only sounds are beeping monitors and whatever junk tv is on there and crying of the baby across the hall and like that is your day-to-day you're just watching the clock tick it is just such a weird space to be where your life has completely stopped and the rest of the world has gone on without you it was really like a big thing that i i didn't realize was like such a huge struggle for me is how alone I felt in that moment how angry I almost felt that like here I am sitting you know with my world crashing down around me and the people who I thought were going to be there the people who I thought would be texting and calling and bringing dinners and things like that like the first time we got sick they were all there they were there the whole time our eighth hospital stay our 10th hospital stay, our 19th hospital stay, you know, it gets exhausting for the people in our lives too. And it's hard because I struggled for so long at anger at other people for not, I don't know, not like continuing to participate, but continuing to participate at the same time, you know, like it was hard. And and when something happens to somebody else, that's bad. And you see all those same people who had rallied around you in the beginning were now gone and you are dealing with your life and your mess and your grief completely by yourself, it's difficult. It's a really difficult thing to kind of go on with. And, and for a long time, I was angry at a lot of people because I felt like, oh, they should have done this. They should have done this. But in reality, it was just, this, the headspace I was in wasn't right either. It is different. And I think too, um, it's hard because I think people don't know what to say. And so they say nothing because they don't want to offend you or make you feel bad. So it's actually coming from a good place. It is. And, but it's the way that you're interpreting it is abandonment. It Um, is. Even though 
they're interpreting it as, oh, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to make them feel bad. I don't want to say the wrong thing. How awful would it be if something I said, but like when they're already in this space made them feel worse. And so, yeah, but when you're in that headspace, it's so hard, especially when it's family that you really thought Mm -hmm. would be there there. and, and they're not. And you're like, well, I expect, you know, friends that maybe have their own lives my life is exhausting to me. I can only imagine like they got their life. Yeah, being a part of it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But when it's your family, you're like, wait, you're supposed to be there. Why aren't you here? Why aren't you? um, And I think a big part was our, like our church family too. I felt so abandoned and isolated from our church family. We had been a part of it for so long and had given so much of our time and our life and our love into, I mean, my husband wasn't in the program to be a youth pastor. Like they're, you know, like we were very involved. And I mean, the night before Sawyer's surgery, when she was six months old, like one of the pastors came up and prayed for us. They never texted. They never reached out. They never, and you know, I, I, I harbored a lot of resentment for a really long time because the, the whole thing was, you know, com- church is supposed to be community. Church is supposed to be, you know, this love and this light. And I felt so without it. And I was just so angry, you know? And yeah. I, then at the same time, I look back now and I'm like, well, nobody wanted to hang out with you because you were angry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think too, you know, you're not sleeping, you're stressed, no. you have like the world on your shoulders. And so that's understandable that you wouldn't be happy, happy. But yeah. on, on the, the note of, church and, and everything through all of this, um, did you struggle with your faith? Absolutely. I mean, honestly, and, and I mean, even sometimes to this day, I do like as our journey has gone on and, and we've kind of just gotten hit like one thing after another, like it's, it's never been easy. We keep, I, I've really struggled when like we keep getting bad things happen to us. Like why, you know, why us? we're good people. We love God. We work hard. We do what we can for the others around us. Like why? why? Like it's so unfair. I mean, I've definitely struggled and, and I still do. Like I, sometimes I still don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to believe in a God sometimes that is this all loving, knowing, powerful God, but then why do my kids suffer? Like why why do bad things happen to good people? And it's, it's a struggle. It's, it's something that, you know, and then I kind of check myself and know, like, there's a purpose, like you're reaching people, you're touching people, you're making a difference. And I I have to remind myself of these things that there is a reason that there is a reason. And, and although it sucks and it really sucks when somebody says like, there's a reason that you're going through all you're going through when you're like at the bottom of your journey and everything is really difficult. Like, I really don't want to hear about how my suffering is going to do good for somebody else. I Right now I'm hurting. But I think that, I mean, sometimes I do. I still have to check myself. And even still, like, I mean, I would be lying if I, I sat here and said that I'm this loving, godly Christian woman who is totally fine. Like, it is well with my soul. Like, everything is fine because it's not always. And and I think for a long time, I was afraid to be mad at God or afraid to be angry about our situation because I would be ungrateful or, or not thankful for the blessings that we do have because we do have a ton. If God can handle anything, God can handle my angry, my anger. 
and that's okay to be angry. It's okay to feel those things and to not say it's all is well with my soul because some things are not. <laughs> some things are not well with my soul at all. <laughs> yeah, and I think something that I try to remind myself about in in my own faith is your relationship with God is a relationship and every relationship will have fights and yeah. um and conflict and just accepting like if any good, if you're in a good relationship, you're going to have disagreements. <laughs> Correct. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You know, in the beginning of my Christian walk too, when you're on fire for God and everything is great and everything happens for a reason. Like I had a really hard time connecting and, and having these conversations with people who would tell you that, that they were struggling because I, I couldn't understand how you could struggle with God when like you knew what you know about God, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm you know that like he's in charge of everything and that, that, you know, everything has a plan and that this plan has already been laid out and set out for you. But then at the same time, there's still so much up to choice and there's still so much not up to us. And the plan can still go. Even though there's an ultimate end goal, there's still a lot of, you know, uncertainty in, in the journey as a whole. And so I didn't understand that for a long time about how people could struggle until I was struggling. And I'm like, oh, it makes sense. Life is really freaking hard. (laughs) (laughs) It is, you know, so you dealt with Sawyer's diagnosis and going through all her hospitalizations. And then you got pregnant again with your second. And how was it you've experienced a loss and you're experiencing the loss of the way that you thought Sawyer's life was going to be how was that number one getting pregnant after that? And and how did you deal with the stress and anxiety surrounding that? Because this is a genetic disorder that you could have another child that had the same challenges that Sawyer has. When we got married, we wanted like a million children. Like I was always the woman. I wanted six kids. I wanted to have to buy like an eight passenger van to cart around my kids and all of their junk and their friends. That's what I envisioned for my life. Part had kind of been taken away from me with every step of everything that we've been through. After our first loss, it became real to me that not only may that be really difficult, but it may not be possible at all, edging away at that dream and that that envisionment. And then when Sawyer was born and with as much difficulty as we had in her first year, um, even her first two years were incredibly difficult. I that we didn't know if we were even gonna have another baby. We partially thought maybe we should just be done so I can devote my full self to her and her care because we didn't know what the long term looked like. And in that moment when we were literally in and out of the hospital every other week and sometimes we were there for two days, sometimes we were there for six weeks, I didn't know how I could ever expand myself to bring another child into that situation. And and with it being genetic and the possibility of it passing down, I had no idea in the world how I would be able to do that with two children. We had always said when we got married, we wanted to have kids back to back. Um, and so obviously when Sawyer was born and with all of her frequent hospitalizations, that was not even an option. We abandoned the idea of having more children right away. And we're kind of at the very beginning, we're like, we're done. We're not having more. Maybe we'll adopt later, but we're not having any more children genetically ever. Then as things kind of started to turn around and Sawyer's like between two and three years old, we really kind of started to get a grasp on her disorder. We got on a clinical trial for a medication that changed her life. Which is now actually uh, actually FDA, FDA approved. approved. 
yeah. which was such a huge thing. We were so excited about that. But uh, we got on the clinical trial and it really did change the quality of her life. When we got on, she was, her muscle development was behind. She was constantly in the hospital. She was metabolically out of control. Um, blood sugars were never stable. And it, it really did. It helped her so much. And we were honestly so honored to be a part of that trial. And now that we were a part of writing history for, you know, the treatment for long chain fatty acid oxidation disorders is just amazing. But we kind of tried and started to change our tune as things started to not get easier, but more manageable. And I feel like so weird, like, like we had to come up with this, but our, our list of rules were our requirements was Sawyer had to be able to go a year at a time without being in the hospital. She had to have her central line removed. Even at that point, she still had her port. And um, with that comes frequent hospitalizations and monthly appointments to get it flushed and, and it comes with a whole other set of care with itself. And so she had to be hospital free for a year, port free, and her um, study visits and such had to stretch out between at least six months at a time because I wanted to be able to make sure we weren't traveling. When we first got on the trial, we were traveling to Pittsburgh from New Mexico every month. It was a lot. And so uh, we needed our travel to space down or to space out a lot as well so that we could actually be home to have a baby. So when Sawyer was two and a half, she got her port removed and we were eight months without a hospital stay. And we were like, okay, like, I think we can discuss this. And so we decided to pull the birth control and we were like, we'll just let it be because it may be another journey. You know, we may have another loss. We may not be able to get pregnant with the progression of my endometriosis. Who knows? Leave it to the powers that be. And I actually found out on Sawyer's third birthday that we were pregnant. I remember that you sent me the pregnancy test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was at her birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese and I threw up in their bathroom after eating pizza and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> So I went home and I was like, oh, happy birthday, Sawyer. I'm giving you another baby. <laughs> yeah, we were, and that came with a lot of fear and worry, obviously. Like you said, after getting pregnant after a loss is one thing. Getting pregnant after a loss and a genetic disorder is a whole nother. Um, and we really kind of struggled with the plan of what to do and how to approach it. Of course, when you are a carrier of a genetic disorder, there are options to where you can do IVF and for some disorders, obviously, there's always exceptions, but you can do IVF and you know they can pick embryos that are genetically normal. But for me, I, I, I really struggled with that, not as a Christian woman, but kind of in a way because I kind of felt like that was taking control of a situation I didn't have control of. I also kind of struggled with, you know, what do they do with the embryos that are, are abnormal? What is Sawyer going to think of later when I tell her that, like, we did everything we could to not have a baby like her? You know, and these were all things in that moment that, like, I really, really struggled with. But then on the other side of the coin, I'm like, I could stop this from being a problem. You know, um, if I know for sure we're going to have a healthy child, then, you know, I know for sure I can de designate that time and our resources to Sawyer and her needs. Really a difficult decision for us, but in the end we decided to go naturally as our disorder has a 70, you have a 50% chance of being a carrier, a 25% chance of being affected, and a 25% chance of not being a carrier or not being affected at all. So essentially we had a 75% chance of having a normal child. At that point, 
with our limited resources, we were already drowning in medical debt anyway with Sawyer. We just decided to try naturally because we really couldn't afford IVF. And I couldn't really get over, you know, my own struggle with IVF, which I will say completely has changed now. My my opinion on that has 100% changed as I worked in an IVF office two years later as a nurse. It's freaking magical what they can do. And I am such a huge proponent for IVF and what it can do for families now. So I just want to introduce that, that I'm not in any way saying that IVF is a bad thing because I think it's incredible and would totally recommend it. So we were kind of back and forth between whether what type of testing to do or even if we wanted to do any testing during the pregnancy anyways we at that point at first we said oh no no we'll wait until the end of the pregnancy and then we'll figure it out but honestly my anxiety got the best of me and I could not wait um I didn't want to wait I wanted to know if we were at higher risk of pregnancy complications because carrying a baby with this disorder um also puts you at eclampsia and help syndrome and uh, preterm labor and some other things pretty much all of which I struggled with with Sawyer (laughs) So um, we wanted to know if we were a high-risk pregnancy in that aspect with kind of how things panned out at the end. um, I was unable to breastfeed Sawyer because of her metabolic disorder. Everybody who says breast is best has obviously never met a child with a metabolic disorder because that is not true. Um, And actually the fats in the breast milk were giving Sawyer heart and liver problems. And so we had to stop breastfeeding very quickly in um, so that she could get the nutrition that she needed because she wasn't getting enough energy from breast milk after she couldn't break down the fat. And so I really struggle with that because I've always been a big advocate for breastfeeding. And so not being able to breastfeed and being perfectly capable to was difficult for me and another, you know, kind of like loss of control that I had directly after Sawyer was born. And so I wanted to know beforehand if I could breastfeed or not, because I did not want to encourage milk supply and pump and do all these things for them to say at three weeks old, oh, she's affected, throw it all away or, or not. Um, and so, so thankfully, Wyatt was not affected. She was born. We ended up having an amniocentesis at 16 weeks, not because even if she was affected, we would not have ended up the pregnancy, but kind of just to give us um, an idea of what to expect and kind of what that looked like post-management directly after birth. So Wyatt ended up just being a carrier. She's not affected and um, is otherwise doing very well. She was born with some holes in her heart that may have to be corrected later on. But honestly, in the grand scheme of what we do (laughs) with Sawyer and our other chronic illness, like I never in my life thought like, oh, just some holes in the heart. Like it's not a big deal. Once, Once she has open heart surgery, that'll be fixed and it'll be fine. But it is on a scheme of like bad things that could have happened to us it really is something manageable and something that won't affect her forever. So we kind of decided quickly after that, then if we wanted to have more children, I cannot even say how much a difference there is between being a parent to a child with chronic medical needs and to a healthy child. It's very, very different. Night and day. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And it was, it was like, I think the, the first night that Wyatt like slept through the night, three months old, I literally woke up and thought she was dead. I was, because that just was not allowed with Sawyer. Like I could not even believe that this was okay, that I could just let her sleep as long as she wanted. Like that was so foreign to me when we were out and about and like she wanted to eat a cheese stick. I didn't have to make sure that it was the appropriate type or, you know, she kept real peanut butter, like just like little things like that, that like 
you know, our entire daily management of Sawyer's disorder touches pieces of our life in every way. And, and it's our normal, like, I, that's just what we do. But it was very weird to introduce a normal side after having an altered normal. Oh, yeah. Um, but so it was, weird. <laughs> it was it's, I can't even imagine for you how different it's been, too, because Charlie's care was so, like, in depth, you know? Yeah, well, she wasn't like, she never, the biggest thing I think that was a weird adjustment for me was that Charlie never really ate via her mouth. She was 99.9% G-tube fed. So having a child that eats by mouth and Noah has uh, an appetite of a full grown man. So, and not having to count fat grams, not having to look at every single nutrition label to be like, how many grams of fat is this? I can cook him my food generally. Like I'm like, oh, he can have like olive oil. Like that's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's weird buying for like two that are like different. Cause I mean, obviously fat is a healthy thing. People need fat to live. So we cannot feed Wyatt Sawyer's diet because it's not healthy for her. She needs the fat for brain and eye development and a natural body response. We can't eat like Sawyer because it's not healthy for us. So it's very weird. Even now I have to cook in two ways all the time and everything, all the kids snacks, I have to have two of things that are very similar so that they get the same thing. But one is low fat or reduced fat and one is not. And so it's, and I'm like, no, 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 you can't share. You can't share. <laughs> like, it it's just weird so things hard. like that. It is. Yeah. It's interesting. But honestly, like having Wyatt was amazing. And it really empowered me that, that I could do it. Like I could have another kid. And Sawyer had a couple of hospitalizations after Wyatt was born. And it was difficult. It was really difficult to be away from one child or the other child. But it, it kind of empowered me that we could do it. Like we could have a bigger family if we wanted to. And of course, then it came down to once again, could we handle another affected child? And kind of what that would look like for our family, how we would manage it. And between the six years from when Sawyer was born and when Weston was born, there was a lot of differences and changes in the management of the disorder because it's a very rare disorder and it's not known a lot about. And so they had given me the AOK that I could breastfeed, even if she had BLCAD, as long as we supplemented with medium chain triglyceride formula or the specialty formula. We went in to delivery with like an emergency protocol letter if things went weird or wrong or things like that. And so with Sawyer, or we ended up having, we decided that we were ready to have a third child. At that point, we had actually decided to forego an amniocentesis and go into delivery blind. So we kind of did all of the options of the things and, and I've kind of learned a little bit about both. And I don't think I would have changed how I went about it, but we went into the delivery with Weston uh, with a really open mind. I had a lot of pregnancy complications with her. Um, I ended up going into preterm labor and she was born premature at 34 weeks, which was already a huge thing for me because I did not struggle with pregnancy complications with Wyatt. My pregnancy was the routine pregnancy. I was nauseous and sick, but not in the hospital for puking my guts up. I did not have preeclampsia. My blood pressure was beautiful. Um, And I think honestly, if my pregnancy had been difficult with why it would change. It might have changed. We might not have had Weston because, but I was like, oh, okay, this is easy. Like I can do this now. Like this is great. It was just such a different experience. 
with Weston, my pregnancy was actually pretty great. I had no problems getting pregnant. I had no problems with spotting or bleeding. My blood pressure was great throughout. And it wasn't until I went into preterm labor at 33 weeks that we saw that anything was wrong or different about the pregnancy. Actually, just kind of a fun fact, me and uh, Brittany went into labor at the exact same time uh, on on the same day. We, I remember I was 39 weeks and Brittany, Brittany was early. And so she went to the doctor to check on these contractions. I went for my normal appointment and we both came out and we're like, well, we're having a baby today. (laughs) It was so weird. But I think it's funny though, too, because I mean, like you and I talked about it in that moment, how even Sawyer and Carly, they were freaking hospital at the same time they had like this weird connection where either you would be at the hospital already with Charlie and I'd text you and be like oh gosh we're gonna be buddies again like Sawyer's being admitted or vice versa they would get hospital envy yeah they were like oh no no no, don't leave us out and they'd be like oh our moms need to talk more so we need to like make sure we're the center of attention so they'd have nothing to do but text each other oh totally what was the difference in your perspective raising a child with VLCAD a second time? I think, honestly, knowledge is power with something like that. Like, I went, when Sawyer was born, so much was unknown. So much was unknown about the disorder from a medical standpoint as it was, but just kind of as a whole, like, we didn't know what to expect. Every symptom was scary. Everything was unknown. We didn't know how to manage it. It, Anytime she was even just mildly sick, we instantly went to the hospital because we just didn't know how to manage it. We didn't know how it would affect her or what she could tolerate. And so, you know, I think a lot of that was, you know, just not, we just didn't know. We didn't know what we were kind of dealing with. When we went in the second time, obviously the team that we were dealing with already knew about Sawyer. They knew her management. They knew her diagnosis. They knew how she tolerated VLCAD and kind of what that looked like. The hospital that we went into already kind of knew what to expect, and we were able to prepare the team for that. We had a meeting with the neonatologist and the team before she was born. Uh, the first time I went into, when I went into preterm labor at 33 weeks, they came up to the room and talked about it, and we went over her letter, and we ha- we went into the birth with a letter that like the second she pops out, you need to check her blood sugar. Like if her sugar's low, this, this, and this needs to be done. Like we went in with a plan for management. I knew that like Sawyer doesn't wean well off of IV fluids. Like she just doesn't. So when Weston was born, I knew they tried to wean her fluids too fast and her blood sugar dropped to 26. And I was like, I told you, I know what I'm talking about. Listen to me. From then on, I was like, oh, okay, like she does know what she's doing. We'll listen to her. But I also just had a voice. I knew, I know how to talk to professionals. I know what's important. I know my kid. I know how her body handles this disorder. Not only now did I know all of that, but I had the confidence to be able to talk about that and and to direct her care. And so I kind of went into Weston's birth as a warrior, like preparing for battle. I know what I'm talking about and what's going on. You may have the MD, but I'm the professional here. And, And because they had worked with us with Sawyer, they knew that. They were totally understanding of that. And so it was a 100% difference. Um, Weston obviously ended up being in the NICU. We found out when she was 10 days old that she was in fact affected, but we had already been managing her as such. We had been giving her um, breast milk and then the specialty oil and formula after breastfeeding. So that way she had what she needed, even the, because it's not dangerous if you give it to a kid who's not affected, but a kid that is affected 
will die without it. So we just treated her as she had it. And once we found out that she did, we were kind of like not shocked. We could have told you that with how my pregnancy went and she struggled a lot with blood sugars after birth and she struggled with weaning IV fluids. So I was not surprised at all when we got that diagnosis, which was also much different from when we got smacked with it with Sawyer. So let's dive into your own struggle in your own health, which, you know, you're so used to being a caretaker at this point, but what happened when you realized that something was very wrong with you? I was pregnant with Weston when all of this started to happen, which was also another like inkling as something was off with Weston. But I, we had actually went for like a routine regular day at the beach. We live in Florida. We have beautiful beaches. We go probably every single weekend. I had fallen asleep on the beach in the shade with sunscreen on and like thought nothing of it. Um, I got home that evening and my legs were really achy and I was like, oh, that's weird. must've just like overdid it. Sometimes walking in the sand makes me sore. And that night, then I noticed that I was incredibly sunburned, like super sunburned on my legs, which was weird because they were not in the sun. And I also had some rash on my chest and like some other weird things. But I was like, okay, I must have just got really sunburned. I must, you know, you make all these excuses. I'm taking care of a million other people. I was like, oh, maybe I forgot to sunscreen myself. I don't know. And you have like no other reason to suspect that there's something really wrong anyway. I had been totally fine, you know? And um, so I got this really bad sunburn. I even posted on Facebook the next day because I was hurting so bad. It was not like a regular sunburn. It was like deep, like reddishy purple. And honestly, like anytime I stood up, I felt like my bones were like exploding from like the inside out. Like it was the most severe pain. I've been in a lot of pain in my life. It was the most severe pain. I literally could not get out of bed and walk to the toilet because the pain in my legs, I had to sit down. And any times I would put my legs like lower than my waist, it was excruciatingly painful. So I even went to the ER probably four days after this. And I was like, something's wrong. And the ER doctor made me feel like a total idiot, total idiot woman. Maybe next time you shouldn't be in the sun. Like you're a nurse. Don't you know better than this? You know, it's called sun poisoning. They, he wrote me off, wouldn't even check my labs, nothing. Sent me home and was like, you're fine. And I was in tears because I was like, this is not right. Like there's something wrong and I had been such an advocate for my kid for my kids for so many years but like I felt totally out of control with my own self because I had never had to stand up for myself and I was like well maybe I am like I do tend to jump to conclusions because my kids are zebras so everything is a zebra like you know like everything is weird um and so I did I came home and I let myself feel stupid and um I put on compression stockings and went to work in the ER two days later I was standing in a patient room starting an IV all of a sudden I was I'm dying I have to sit down I am not okay I'm in so much pain and I hobbled out to the nurse's station and I pulled up my pant leg and my legs were purple purple no blood flow purple And the doctor I was working with at the time looked at him and she's like, nope, 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 you need to go. Like, you need to go right now. That is not okay. And so they loaded me up in a wheelchair and took me to the adult side. 
and it was just like an onslaught of crazy all at once. Um, I had like internal medicine doctors coming. I had all these other weird specialists, vascular surgeons. They were checking me for blood clots. They were doing, my labs were off and funky. My markers for inflammation were like dangerously high. It was, it was, it was just crazy. And, and of course I was pregnant on top of this. So like, then I had the OB doctors and everybody on that side too, like expecting delivery at 28 weeks because of everything that was going on. They didn't know what that was going to do for my pregnancy. Was this directly affecting my placenta? If it was affecting blood flow, was I going to get a blood clot? It was like all these things. It was just crazy. It was scary. Um, at one point they were talking about compartment syndrome and how if that were the case, they would have to make incisions at both sides of my legs from ankle to thigh to allow for um, circulation to be restored. It was terrifying. It was, I just, I like, and it came out of literally nowhere. I had went to work that day and then all of a sudden my whole world was upside down. Again. <laughs> I mean, this, I mean, really you've had yeah. kind of this happen so many times at this point. What are you thinking? I was just, it would, this would happen to me. <laughs> at this point, I was like, of course, why not? Like of all the random crap that happens to people, this would happen to me. Anytime somebody's like, oh, that's a one in a million chance. And I'm like, well, I'm like one in 500 billion. So like, I'm like afraid to walk outside because I'm going to get struck by lightning. Cause I'm like in that percentage of people that things happen to, I swear. No, it was just, I was at that point. I was like, of course this would happen. And, and nobody knew what it was. They were just kind of throwing around like a million different options and diagnoses. Was it just like a so at one point they thought maybe I had like second or third degree burns that uh, were like hiding underneath of the skin and they were waiting to come out. At one point they thought, like I said, it was blood clots. Um, nobody really knew. What, what ended up being your diagnosis? They didn't, I didn't have one when I was discharged from the hospital. They had no clue. They had thought maybe it was something like May Thurner syndrome, which is where it's pretty much directly related to pregnancy almost in the fact that like there's pressure on your like um, ascending aorta and so it like cuts off blood supply to the legs and they thought that the inflammation maybe from the sunburn was just like aggravating that underlying condition that I already had that I didn't know I had then they threw around the whole severe burn thing. So I was on like a burn protocol too. But like at the same time, it was weird because my legs didn't feel sunburn anymore. Like my skin didn't feel sunburn. It was all underneath that was painful. So I didn't, I never thought it was from the sunburn exactly. I thought it was always something like that the sunburn had aggravated. So I was sent home without a diagnosis and I was sent home on steroids, a high dose steroids, because they found that that was the only thing that relieved my pain. That was the only thing that was showing an improvement in my labs was after they started the steroids. And that was kind of their first inkling that maybe it was like an autoimmune something, but they didn't know exactly what it was. At one point, somebody had thrown out, oh, well, maybe it's lupus, but none of my other things seemed to match and I had never had any other symptoms. So they were like, it could potentially be lupus and that would explain like the sensitivity to the sun and stuff like that. But so they had thrown around lupus 
but I had never had any other symptoms of it. And so they were like, no, that, that doesn't make sense that this would be how you'd onset. Like you would have had other symptoms before. So then they were like, there was some other autoimmune disorders they were possibly thinking that makes you higher risk for like skin stuff. And so, but a lot of the testing that they wanted to do, they couldn't do because I was pregnant. So it kind of complicated things and there wasn't a whole lot of things that they could do to officially diagnose anything until after the baby was born. So I stayed on high dose steroids through the rest of my pregnancy because that was the only thing that improved anything. And anytime I would try to wean off of them, my pain would get severe again. My legs would turn purple. Like it was this this weird thing that nobody really understood. And I was following up with vascular surgeons and high risk um, OB doctors and cardiologists, my regular OB. And then eventually I got referred to a rheumatologist because they were like, everything else is normal. So we have no idea. We'll send you to them. And my first rheumatology appointment was actually the day that I went into preterm labor. (laughs) So they saw, he saw me that morning. He's like, we'll stay on the steroids. For now, and because the steroids won't really hurt baby long term, you'll just need like a stress dose steroids when you're delivered and or when you deliver. And then after that, we can kind of throw things out there. And they did do a slew of blood work. I cannot, I feel like they drained my whole body that day because they did so much blood work. Um, Vampire. But yeah, for real. I'm like, why do you need 1900 tubes of my blood? Like, I've got nothing left, buddy. After you had Weston. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel like it got better or worse? It's hard to say because I had already improved so much from when I had everything started that I feel like part of it was like a natural healing process. And the day I delivered, they started me on medication for, or the day after I delivered, they started me on um, hydroxychloroquine, which is a very common um, treatment. It's the most common treatment for lupus. Yeah. So they actually started me on that the day after she was born because they got some of my blood work back and he was starting to lean more towards the lupus diagnosis at that point. It wasn't an official diagnosis, but he said, if you don't have lupus, it's not going to hurt you to take it. And if you do have lupus, um, it could make all the difference. So um, I started that directly after she was born. So I didn't really have any like severe problems lupus wise postpartum because I feel like we kind of started, that's when we started to ramp up my treatment for lupus as she was born. So, and I think the, like the reduction of inflammation from, you know, having a giant fetus in you helps a lot too, when you can have better circulation and things like that to your legs. So I think actually things started to get a little bit better in certain ways until um, a couple months down the road when I started to have that big first postpartum hormone shift, like around three to four months. And then that's when I really started to have some more issues at that point. So let's talk about when the word lupus started coming into the picture. And I know you mentioned that they thought it could be, but they weren't sure. Like when did you get an actual diagnosis? Not until, I mean, from the start of when all of my like really big symptoms started to when I got an actual diagnosis was probably about six months, which actually autoimmune life, that is a super short amount of time for diagnosis, which is crazy because most people try and are trying to find a diagnosis for six years or, you know, whatever long amount of time. And so um, in some sense, it was great that I had a diagnosis so quick, but then the other side, it's like, okay, obviously it's severe enough 
that we know what it is right off the bat. So it was kind of, it was relieving to have a diagnosis. And honestly, it when they told me, it was kind of, I don't know, just relieving to know that I wasn't crazy, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're like, this like, is real. I can put a name to this. Yeah, and then it was crazy because they were going over all of these, you know, symptoms of lupus and like kind of what can I what can I expect and that kind of thing and I'm like thinking back and I'm like oh I've had weird sores in my mouth forever like I never would have ever thought that that was something that was caused by lupus or things like that and then um headaches and weird things I'm like oh I'm just somebody who gets headaches frequently so it was kind of crazy because after they were like okay so this is what you have and all it encompasses. I'm like, oh my gosh, I maybe I have had something going on for longer than I thought, but you know, you always just chalk it up to I didn't get enough sleep or you know, I didn't I'm stressed or I have weird sores. I don't know. <laughs> when you're a mom and they're like, yeah, fatigue is one of the symptoms. You're like, well, I'm a right. parent. Like, what parent is right. tired? And I'm a parent of two special needs children. So like, right. <laughs> I'm like, fatigue is um, just a normal part of my life. Right. So when you started getting on the, I know they already had you on a lot of the same treatments that they would have probably provided for lupus anyway. Was there anything else that they added once you got your official diagnosis? Yeah. So, um, we, like we kind of talked about, they started me on the hydroxychloroquine as soon as I delivered. And I didn't get an actual lupus diagnosis until probably about three months after that. They, we're just kind of seeing if that helped with my symptoms. Lupus is kind of a crazy disease and the fact that, you know, not every person presents the same. And even if you have all of the symptoms, your blood work can look totally normal and you can have lupus, even if your blood work doesn't say so, or vice versa, like you can, your blood work can look awful, but your disease can be in remission and fact that you don't have any symptoms and so it's kind of like this huge spectrum of where you can fall on that type of disease plane as far as severity and every person presents differently I have a really really good friend and she's had lupus for 10 or so years and she has been fighting lupus for a while and and hers primarily attacks her central nervous system so she has seizures and brain lesions and and things like that. Whereas thankfully I've never had things like that, but mine primarily attacks my vascular system. So I get vasculitis and blood clots and um, rashes and things like that, that are more associated with my type of flares. Some people have it where it attacks their kidneys or their liver. And so that's what makes it such a difficult disease is you could gather 10 people with the same lupus diagnosis and not have a single patient that has a similar symptom which is partially why it's so difficult to diagnose. I had no idea. I I thought that yeah. it presented in a similar way as like um, rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. But that is know. crazy. That makes sense on why it's so hard to nail down. Yeah, because I mean, and, and so that's essentially what it is, is your type is just essentially what type of antibodies that your body or auto antibodies that your body has produced. So, um for whatever reason, my autoantibodies primarily attack my vascular system as we talk. So I, or as I said, so I got, so I get pleuritis, which is inflammation in the vascular system, primarily around my lungs. And I get it really bad in my legs and I get it. I had a really large blood clot in my left arm just a few months ago that extended from 
the palm of my hand to my armpit, which is just like unheard of. But it's all kind of just how your body attacks itself, which is what makes it so scary and difficult because really too, treatment kind of varies on what works for different people as well. So when you got this diagnosis, I know it it helps to put a name on it and it helps you not feel like, like you said, crazy. Like you don't feel like you're just like, oh, it's all in my head. But how did it feel getting that diagnosis from the point, okay, I now have this chronic condition that has no cure. What was that feeling like? To be honest with you, I didn't feel it. (laughs) I didn't let myself feel it um, for a very long time. Um, I was kind of in denial because, I mean, just like with every, every grief or loss, I mean, this was a huge thing for me, you know, this is, it's a loss of, of what you know your life to be as it is right now. And it's going to forever be different. And that is, I mean, so you start with denial. It, it didn't have, this isn't like, no, maybe they got it wrong. Like maybe, maybe it'll get better. And then you start, you know, just the whole thing where you're eventually you're like, crap, like this is my life. <laughs> this really is. And and honestly, I didn't even really start, I think, to acknowledge it until my symptoms started to get better because I was so used to feeling so bad that I didn't realize how bad I felt till I started to felt to feel better, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So after my diagnosis, um, about three months later, my levels started to get better. The, the big things that they watch for, it's called ANA or it's an autoantibody or an autoantibody nucleic something or other, some long name. Essentially, it monitors how high your autoantibody count is in your body. When I first got my set of blood work, mine was insane high. So like normal, it's kind of like, it's a, it's actually like in a ratio form. It's really weird, mm. but mine, um, like normal, I think is one, one in 180, less than one in 180. And mine was one in 3000. Oh, wow. Yeah. That would uh, raise <laughs> they a were couple like, flags. Yeah. They were like, oh no, that's, it's definitely something autoimmune. That started to trend down about three months after um, being on the steroids and the hydroxychloroquine, but it was still very elevated from where it should be. And there's two other big inflammatory markers that are um, really elevated. One's called the CRP and uh, one's called a SEDRI. And those kind of just monitor the amount of inflammation in your body at one time. Um, And when those are really, really high, those put you at risk for stroke and heart attack and blood clots and things like that, because inflammation is inflammation. And especially with my lupus that attacks my blood vessels, inflammation in my vascular system is very dangerous. So um, normal, like CRP is usually like, I think it's less than two. And mine was like 89 or something, which is obviously really high. And the goal was trying to get that down. A couple months after that, I ended up having to stop breastfeeding because I was still breastfeeding. And they ended up putting me on an injectable medication that I take once a week um, called Benlista. And it's actually the only FDA approved medication for lupus patients that's specifically only for lupus. They use a lot of other medications like low dose chemotherapies or. Um, yeah, I've, heard, I've seen a methotrexate, I think is. That's is a big one. one. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And they use that one a lot for rheumatoid arthritis as well. But they also use um, like some of the anti rejection meds that they put uh, transplant patients on. Oh, interesting. Um, so, how do you feel on the medication? 
the first couple injections were really rough for me. I was getting horrible, horrible headaches. I was really nauseous. Fatigue was unlike anything I've ever felt. I literally could not get out of bed for two days after my shots. And when you're taking a shot every week, that's a decent percentage of your week, you know? Um, The first couple months on that medication were pretty rough. And it took probably, like I said, probably about eight injections. So about two months where my body was finally like, okay, like we're good. And even still, like I have to plan. So I always take my injections on Sunday afternoon because they usually always give me like a groggy kind of headache, probably like three to four hours afterwards. So I try to time it where I take it like two to three hours before bed. So that way I can go to sleep right before I start feeling like crap. (laughs) And then that way when I wake up, I'm kind of over most of it, I still usually have a pretty groggy or like iffy Monday morning, but I figure it's Monday. So that also doesn't help. <laughs> right. How, how has it been dealing with the side effects of the medications and, you know, the consequences of having this disease with also trying to balance being a mom and being a mom, like you said, to two children that need more attention? It's difficult. I mean, there's really not any other way to say that. It just kind of sucks. Thankfully, honestly, because my kids have medical conditions, like my oldest kind of gets it. And she has rough days too with her disease where she just doesn't feel well and her muscles kind of ache and she just doesn't feel great. And so we've always kind of, we call it a bed day where we just have a bed day and we lay around and we literally watch TV all day and we eat only things that you can microwave, which is totally not healthy. But you know, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do to get by. And so, I mean, I just, I'll pull all three kids into my bed and we'll watch movies all day and just hang out. And because it's kind of been part of their normal forever, honestly, that's one upside is that they kind of, they get it. So they're, they're pretty okay with it. Um, but it, I mean, it is difficult. You, you're then bandaging and your appointments on top of their appointments. And we were literally at that point in time at the doctor's every probably couple days, usually two or three times a week um, for one or the other, whether it was me or one of the three girls. And especially with Wyatt's heart stuff too, she even sees a cardiologist every couple months. And so, I mean, we were always at a doctor's appointment one of us was always getting some form of blood work. And so like- They must know you very well at the pharmacy. <laughs> oh my, they do, they do. Actually, the pharmacist, whenever uh, we roll in and I get a medication for me, he's like, are you the kid with the, the daughters that have really cool names? And I'm like, yeah, actually that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. They all know our last name. And so they know us very, very well. Um, Adjusting to life with lupus and everything and COVID, which by the way, you are immune to COVID because you're on hydroxychloroquine, right? That's the the medication oh, that they're saying. Oh geez. <laughs> so joking uh, aside. Maybe so, if I had it maybe if I had a normal immune system on top of it, sure. Right, right. <laughs> totally. Um but adjusting to this new life, I'm sure it is incredibly difficult because, well, number one, you have a lot on your plate. Number two, um, you had to leave your career in nursing that you loved 
So let's talk about your career as a nurse and that decision that you made to, at least for right now, hit pause button, especially given everything that's going on. What was that decision like for you? So my passion in life is emergency room nursing. It truly is like, I love it so much. There's just something so amazing about taking a stranger and fixing their problems. And in more ways than one, not even just medically, but I mean, in the emergency room, you would deal with everything I could do, like a whole podcast on the amazing thing about that. But when I started on the Ben list, it was in the middle of flu season. And um, we, I knew it was a risk that I was more at risk at that point. Um, we get our flu shots. And of course, I did everything that I could to prevent myself from getting sick, wearing, including wearing a mask. So people who say that people don't wear masks during flu season is very wrong because I wear a mask all flu season now. But once we made the decision to add the cell sets, and that completely knocks out my immune system, I knew especially with the rises in COVID cases, that going back was just not an option, not only for my health, but for my girls as well, because now I have a whole other, you know, side of thinking is that, like, if I die, like, not only am I leaving three kids behind, but I'm leaving kids that need extra support. And so I think that's honestly probably been the hardest adjustment with getting this diagnosis is that there is a very, very good chance that I will die younger than I would have without this disease. And coming to terms with knowing that somehow, some way, most likely earlier than I should have, I will leave my children. That was honestly like the most difficult thing, especially with their conditions as well. I mean, I'm their advocate. I'm the person who's at every appointment. I know everything about everything, you know, I've done all of the research and know more than most doctors when it comes to this, their disease and their condition. And I think just knowing that and preparing them in a way that they're going to be able to handle it when I most likely die young, which sucks sorry. No, that's okay. You're making me cry too. <laughs> um, so I think that was something. And, and when you're looking at life like that, um, you just kind of have to reduce risk where you can. Um, you know, being at a hospital with patients and especially with, you know, being it being a novel virus and lack of knowledge, you don't really know. And we're learning so much you don't really know, you know, how it's spread or, or we don't have a treatment. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have something to reduce that risk. Um, when it came down to looking at, you know, the risk of me being directly exposed and, and actually the decision came down to one night I was exposed. So we had um, a little girl come in who was not breathing on her own and they pretty much just, they came in by ambulance and this was in March right before, I mean, we knew COVID was around and COVID was big and rampant in New York, but it really hadn't reached the rest of the United States yet. And so we were discussing um, at work and even just a few hours before this happened, you know, what type of implementations would need to happen in, in order to keep our staff safe, because we knew it was only a matter of time until it made its way around. 
So this little girl came in by ambulance and was not breathing on her own. And we took her into the, the resuscitation room and we were trying to get her intubated, which is where you put a tube down their throat into their lungs um, to help them breathe because they're unable to do it themselves. I was one of the head nurses helping start getting IVs and helping set up for intubation right by this patient's face. It was kind of a commotion and we started taking history from the mother who had just flown in from New York two weeks prior um, after being on a girl's trip. And it was instantly like, oh crap, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this was, you know, there was a, it was, there was a chance there. I mean, the chance was slim, but there was a chance. And so as I'm sitting there with no mask on, I just have my gloves on literally inches from this little girl's face helping breathe for her, you know, I'm like, oh gosh, like, we don't know what we're dealing with. Like, this is an option. And so they closed down the trauma room and nobody was allowed. Any staff that was in there had to stay. So they weren't allowed to come out. No new staff was allowed to be introduced in. And they brought us N95 masks and goggles and masks and gowns and the whole bit. And they essentially said, you're not allowed to come out. Like, that's just what it was. And so this was before I had started the cell set. So, I mean, I was afraid, but I did, I, I was relieved to know that I had some immune system but it was terrifying in that moment to be like this is all it takes it's one patient to come in to an emergency room with a risk that we didn't identify at first and now we're exposed that shift kind of changed it all for me I cried on the drive home because I'm sitting there in my 45 minute drive home thinking about you know oh my god I don't have a will like if I get sick like how long do I have until I'm on a ventilator and not able to make these decisions or things like that. And, you know, I called my husband and I said, I am literally getting naked on the porch. I do not care. I'm getting naked on the porch. Bring me a trash bag for my scrubs. Like this is, and I did my poor neighbors, but, um, <laughs> you do what you gotta you know, do. I was like, you know, there's worse things in the world. I did. I got naked on the porch and I loaded everything I could into a trash bag and threw it into the washing machine on the hottest pot that I could get it. And, you know, we didn't know a lot about anything of, of the virus at that point. We, it's at, at that point, they were saying N95 masks were required because they thought it was airborne. And, and so um, it was scary. And then four days later, my husband got a sinus infection and I kid you not, I thought we were all dying. So it was, <laughs> I mean, everyone awful. thought at that time, like, we had no idea, right? Like, it yeah, was just... We had no clue. And no I think idea. It, and that patient, I, I mean, I honestly, I told my boss I can't come to work. Um, and they put me on a leave of absence starting that day. So I, that was actually the last shift I worked in the emergency room was coming home from that. And I have given up a lot for myself and for my husband and kids over the last six years. I mean, we haven't really talked much about that side, but my husband ended up having to join the military just so that we could afford our medical bills because with the two girls and after Wyatt was diagnosed with her heart defect and we knew that open heart surgery was an option, um, we were drowning in medical debt. So he, he ended up having to join the military just to get us a good enough insurance that we could afford to live because on paper, we made too much money to qualify for any state assistance. 
but when you look at our income versus the almost $1,000 a month we were paying for G-tube supplies, medications, and specialty formula, I, I mean, we were paying an entire extra mortgage essentially on keeping our one daughter alive. And then once we got Wyatt's diagnosis, we knew it just wasn't sustainable. So he joined the military and so I gave up my whole life. Really, you know, I, we moved away from my family. We, I uprooted my job to be a stay at home mom for the most part. And I kind of feel like my part-time job in the ER was my last shred of my normalcy and my life that was just mine. And you know, this disease had taken away our, our option of having more children. We always wanted a really big family. And after my last pregnancy with, you know, all of my complications with Weston being premature and um, all of my vascular issues and my blood clot, they recommended we not have any more children, which was absolutely horrible because we wanted at least probably one or two more kids you know, we're very, very blessed for the children that we have, and, and I'm thankful for them every single day, but, you know, it's different when you make that decision, when you feel that your family is complete, and, you know, to have that kind of, like, taken away from you yeah. sucks. It really sucks. That's really, really hard. I know that you guys have been through so much, and the biggest way to help somebody going through something like this is just being there. And you have always been that for me. And I know that no matter what, I could always text you or call you at any time of the day or night. And honestly, like that is, is the biggest amount of help. And even though you can't drop everything, you know, and, and come across the world, because we live literally on opposite ends of the country from each other. But I mean, just being support, supportive and there and I think that's everything because that's one thing that like you don't realize how isolating it is. I mean, you realize it, but most people don't realize how isolating it is to be in this type of situation. And, and like I said, when we were talking kind of about Sawyer and being in the hospital with her, you know, you, you just sit in this hospital room watching a time literally slip by second by second knowing that like your entire world is in that room, but the rest of the world goes on. And there's not a more alone and like sinking feeling than just sitting there. And so, I mean, the biggest way to be a support is, or to, to help somebody in this situation is just to be there, you know? And like I said, even though you haven't always been able to be there in person, you always text me to check in on me or call me or message me or, you know, like it's always, you're always there and that's more help than anything than, oh, than anything we could be. So I always like to leave off with something positive and what is something that has, like, if you're having a hard day, like you're just having one of those days what is something that you do, something that you read or something that you listen to that kind of helps bring you back to a more positive state? I mean, that's hard. I, I feel like it constantly changes to, you know, kind of like what I need in that moment. Um, and I've learned not to pray for certain things because then God just gives you another test. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> He's like, oh yeah, like, okay, sure. I'm like, don't pray for patience. Never pray for patience. <laughs> Because then you're given a test to teach you a lot about patience. <laughs> um, 
for me, it's mostly just knowing that like this moment isn't forever. And, and really like, that's just kind of what I remind myself of when things are really rough. Um, and I try, I think more for me, instead of focusing in like the bad moment, like how to get through the bad moment, I really try and take the good moments to reflect on the bad moments, if that makes sense. So instead of, you know, when things are really awful and horrible and, you know, thinking of all the good times and how sad and depressed I am that right now this moment sucks, I kind of, I try to remind myself in my daily moment when things are good and I'm feeling good and the girls are home and, you know, we're out doing things. And I try to remember that like this moment is the moment that's important and, you know, in, in all of the bad moments, these are the moments that we need to live for and to remember because I think if you just sit there in when you're in a negative and dark spot in life, looking to the positive always helps. I think kind of building that foundation of strength and kind of being able to weather a storm is in the good times reflecting on the bad times, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. And you are a wise woman. Um, seriously. Um, I think we got everything. Um, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your advice and support. Uh, seriously, thank you. No, absolutely. I am honestly so honored that you asked me and if you ever need anything, you know where to find me in my messed up life. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Brittany. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. I'm super excited to hear it all put together.